Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Kristen Van Uden. She serves as an author spokeswoman at Sophia Institute Press. She is also the editor of the Catholic Exchange, and she studies the persecution of Catholics under communist regimes, which fits in real well, Kristen, with your latest article on how to make an atheist. It does, yes. Father Michelli is one of these great anti-communist figures of the 20th century who writes about, really, in his, his other book, The Antichrist, he diagnoses communism actually as one of the doctrines of the Antichrist himself. So one of these ideologies that is paving the way really for the, the actual end times and is very clear when it tells the world that it's atheistic and that it's anti-God. Of course, by their fruits, you shall know them. And so he definitely sees communism for what it is, sees through all the false utopian promises and sees it as this atheistic tool of Satan. Uh, as we were talking before we went on, you're you're writing a book on this topic as well, right? I am, yes. So I'm very excited. I'm interviewing a lot of very heroic figures from all across the globe who have survived communism, and not only that, but who were persecuted specifically for their Catholic faith. So the church in many of these countries went underground. In Eastern Europe, for example, in Slovakia, there was sort of a shadow church, a collaborator, official state church, very similar to what's going on in China even today. And then the true church would go underground and would refuse to collaborate with the regime. And so the temptation was there always for people to just go along to get along, right? To stifle your conscience and to go to mass under the auspices of what the states had designated. But of course, we know that no man has any authority over God and that all true authority comes from God, and so we can never subordinate the church to any um, worldly human institution. So many heroic Catholics refuse to go along with this program, and the oppression is really interesting because it ranges. There is outright oppression, even martyrdom in many countries, which is just amazing and inspiring to read about. And there's also varying degrees that stem all the way from the worst, the apex, martyrdom, down to something as simple as being refused entry into a school, for example, or not being able to get an apartment or all of these other social things that are means of more soft oppression, similar, again, to China's current um, social credit system, for example. So the oppression took on many forms. Some people's suffering constituted more of a white martyrdom, where they were denied access to education or medical surgeries, um, you know, jobs, opportunities, things like that. In many cases, mass itself was banned. And so even living out the daily practice of the faith and possessing um, even Catholic imagery was something that would put a target on your back. And so all of these very diverse stories, um, everyone suffered in their own way. But what is the through line is their dedication to preserving the faith. And I'm just very grateful to have the opportunity to discuss this with them. I mean, I think that's, you know, listening to what you're talking about, I think that's what makes it so disappointing. And, you know, Pope Francis doing secret deals with China and basically Mm -hmm. throwing the the faithful under the bus and not, you know, we have Cardinal Zen being persecuted in Hong Kong, nothing said about it. So it really does, 
remind us that we have to be faithful, even when our leaders do crazy things and really try to um, accommodate the communists. We have to live our faith and not get into bed with them because otherwise it just blows everything up. To let the Chinese government help pick our bishops is insane. I know. That is very disappointing to say, I mean, in the least. And one of the points that Father Michelli, who who wrote this book, The Gods of Atheism, makes again in his other book, The Antichrist, is that he believes that detente with the Soviet Union, and he was writing in the 80s, detente itself represented a compromise and that there can be no compromise with communists. And of course, you can you can argue the, the geopolitical ramifications of that specifically. But the principle remains true, which is that if you comp- in a compromise between good and evil, only evil wins. I think that comes from Ayn Rand, that quote. And it is true that, you know, the, the definition of Catholic as whole and inviolate, the profession of faith, we know that the way heresy works is that it can be 99% true, but then the heretic interjects one drop of poison and it ruins their entire faith. And so we know that we can't pick and choose with the faith. We can't be cafeteria Catholics even under duress, even when the temptation isn't just for your own pleasure, but for, you know, survival under a communistic state. That That is anathema to what it means to be a Catholic. We can't water down the faith. We can't change the truths. We can't, you know, open them up to the world because Christ told us his kingdom is not of this world, it's of the next. And so the the principle of compromising with those who seek our destruction is only one that is ultimately suicidal and can only serve to weaken someone's faith in the long run. So Father Michelli really encourages Catholics and and really the, the stories that I am collecting as well, I think, serve as these living icons, these very convicting, uh, just like the lives of the saints do, biographies that inspire us to even in our own lives, refuse to make those little moral compromises here and there. Because if you start doing that, by the time you know it, it's, it amounts to a full apostasy. Well, and I mean, the kind of and, and what you're describing is kind of the world in which we're living in now, right? I mean, with your study of communism, you know, you've seen what atheism can do to destroy countries, to devastate people. But how are you seeing those parallels of communist tactics going on in our country today. I mean, whether it's controlling language, censorship, demonization, attacks on family, life, marriage. I mean, it's it seems across the board they're using the communist playbook and way too many too many people are are buying it. Yes, I think so. I mean, the past two or so years, especially the elephant in the room of how uh personal freedoms were eroded during the past two and a half years under this is this medical totalitarianism, I think, is one example. And freedom of movement, basically all of our constitutional rights were were subordinated to um, the state at that point. So that was a very shocking and scary example to me. But also these moral issues. And this is a point that uh, Father Michelli himself makes again and again, is that the erosion of the nuclear family can only have these horrific consequences at the societal level. And that is one of the tactics the communists always take. And they took this in Eastern Europe uh, during the 20th century, where they would actually seek to undermine the church's authority sort of surreptitiously. So they would try to uh, morally destabilize the clergy, for example. They would try to introduce 
scandal into the clergy, try to, as we know from Bella Dodd, who was a former communist operative who converted to Catholicism Mm -hmm. under the guidance of Fulton Sheen, she said that she helped to place 1,300 men in the seminaries who were going to subvert Catholic doctrine, even in the United States. So we know that they were doing this in Eastern Europe, too. And their role was to, to shift the needle slowly. And a big way to do this is through scandalizing the faithful. Because if the faithful, you, you know, you can, you can try to shift doctrine itself, which, of course, we you know doctrine cannot change, but that's one of the tactics they took. But something that's even more immediate to the senses and to the sense of the faithful is the example of their clergy. So if you can get people into those roles who are going to cause scandal on purpose in order to uh, just demoralize Catholics, that is one step further away from the church that, that you're bringing the faithful. And so the communists were very shrewd in doing this because they knew that once the faithful lost this sense of respect and faith for the practitioners of the faith, then the faith itself was close to follow. Well, and in your article, you quote Father Maselli, and I think it's a good quote. It says, atheists like saints are made, not born, right? It, it's something we have to work at if we want to be a saint. But to be an atheist, right, they're, they're working at converting people to this, you know, moral relativism, this religion of nothing. Uh, that leads to every their doom and destruction. So I thought it was a good quote. And, you know, you go through several steps in this article about how to make an atheist. And you were talking about, I think it was more or less step number two, the attack of the dignity of God. Um, but there's that first one, right? The worship of self. What does that look like? The worship of the self is basically the root of all sin, because this is just another way of describing pride, right? So this is the first sin of Satan and his non-servium, and it's also the sins of Adam and Eve when they, they thought they knew better, and they, they believed the temptation that God was was lying to them, and they, they fell through their pride and their desire for knowledge. So um, a point that Father Michelli makes is that often an atheist, before he elevates his belief in atheism, which is kind of an oxymoron, to the level of right. doctrine, he lives more as a practical atheist. And so this most often is exemplified in small, selfish, prideful acts. So he says that even a man living in mortal sin habitually, who is sort of obstinately refusing to submit to God's will, is already a material atheist because he's acting as if God didn't matter, right? He's acting as if God didn't exist. His laws don't matter. He's going to do what he wants anyway. And it doesn't matter that whatever God thinks. And so this, if we're not careful, can lead us to full-blown atheism because atheism is what? A doctrinal rejection of God. It is taking this selfishness and creating, you know, as I say, to assuage the conscience, entire creeds are drawn up to justify and enshrine these actions of pride. So they're taking this sinful license and, you know, <laughs> using sophistry to make arguments in order to justify their own refusal to submit to God. And it's very interesting that in this book, The Gods of Atheism, most of these philosophers of atheism are former Christians or grew up in a Christian mm-hmm. society. So I was discussing this on another podcast about how what they're rejecting is specifically the Christian God. So in today's iterations where science has been deified, um, perhaps they're coming at it from a bit of a different angle. But in the Western tradition, the, these great 
thinkers and godfathers of atheism are like Nietzsche, a former Lutheran, and his father was a Lutheran pastor. And then many of them at Comte were, were children of the French Revolution, so came even from a Catholic background. And so the concept that they have of God is of the Christian God. And they are, atheism is not so much defined as a lack of doctrine or a lack of worship, but a worship of idols. And so that's the point about what the self, the role of the self is, because as the title of this book, The Gods of Atheism, suggests, atheists don't worship nothing. <laughs> they worship something because there is that innate human desire to worship God because we are made in the image and likeness of God. We can't change that. We can't, we can't surgically extract that you know, just desire to serve God. And so if we're not going to place God in his proper context, something else will take his place and we will worship materially something. And more often than not, that is the self. Well, and, 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 you know, it was the original sin in the garden, right? They wanted to be equal to God, and it was all about self. And we see it just continue to perpetuate itself throughout history. And, and we, you would think we'd be smarter than that. But unfortunately, you know, as you point out in your article, uh, we, we buy it hook, line, and sinker. As a matter of fact, right, we have universities and really even now K through 12 schools, right, continually pushing this this lie about self, right? The attack on the dignity of God. And you, you also have a quote in that section too by uh, Van Zeller, uh, where the mm -hmm. dignity of Christ is lost sight of, the divinity follows suit. So, right, you know exactly where we're headed when we start attacking Jesus. And we see that in our schools and universities, don't we? Yes. And this goes back to that principle of lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of worship is the law of belief. So, Van Zeller was writing in the context of the liturgy itself and, and these changes that were instituted after the Second Vatican Council, how when you when you take away the dignity of God in the liturgy, and um, especially in respect to the real presence, then the natural fruits are the disbelief in the real presence and the, the horrifying statistics that we see today. And so this can be applied also to the schools. Like if we are um, and Father Michelli writes a lot about Catholic schools and how they've capitulated to the world in his other book, The Antichrist. But if Catholic schools are simultaneously teaching the truth of the Catholic faith, but then acting as if they don't matter by subverting it at every turn, by introducing these sort of woke policies or, you know, teaching one thing about Christian morality and then living out another thing, it it means that the on the point of view of the student, they're going to not take the faith seriously because they see that they're being taught one thing and yet another is being enacted and lived out. And this is the danger of hypocrisy, right, of giving this false view and this cognitive dissonance between what you know to be the truth <laughs> and what is actually happening and being taught. And so it's, it's yet another... Uh, fruit of compromise where you really the fruit of compromise is this collaboration and is this ultimate hypocrisy well and uh, you know you're you're absolutely right and the, the hypocrisy is is quite evident you don't have to look far to see it it's you can see it each and every day you know you talk about you know the sowing of doubt right, where we're really hitting science and this you know we have to have this empirical evidence uh, against the faith. And, you know, you know, you give the example of the Enlightenment, and we're, we're doing the exact same thing, aren't we? Yes, and this is a big wake-up call for me. When I first 
discovered this a few years ago, that the Enlightenment was, from a Catholic perspective, actually not a good thing. <laughs> um, as I explained, it shifted the type of thinking. So whereas before, metaphysical a priori, as it's called, arguments before the fact, based on deductive reasoning, was the norm. And this ca characterized medieval philosophy, St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, all the great thinkers on whom Christendom was built. There was a really a revolution of thinking at the Enlightenment, which resulted in the deification of empiricism. So evidence that can be perceived with the senses and empirical evidence was really enthroned as the only acceptable means of proving anything at the Enlightenment. And so we're, when you try to discuss faith in terms of empiricism, it's just impossible. It's, it's apples and oranges. And trying, as Father Michelli points out, trying to find this, the scientific evidence for God as your only basis of faith is, number one, contrary to the virtue of faith, but also unreasonable, as he says, in demanding what is impossible, because we know that faith and science are compatible, because obviously God created the world, created the physical world, created everything we can perceive with our senses, but he also created us as with an eternal soul, and we know this because of the fact that we possess intelligence that sets us apart from the animals, we possess morality. And so to reduce human beings just to animals, which is what this deification of science does, is just a denial of who we are in our most basic sense. And Father Michelli uses the term, I think, decapitated love as how he characterizes atheists, because they seek to love man really only as man without God. They seek to love humankind almost as an animal species that arose from years of evolution and chance rather than divinely created and intended by God. And so because we are made in the image and likeness of God, no matter how much we describe ourselves via scientific terminology, that is our true identity. And so atheists essentially look in the mirror, see the image and likeness of God and reject it. And so this is why Nietzsche was pretty accurate, actually, when he said that the, the logical conclusion of atheism is suicide, because you, you're not, you know, if, if, if this life is, is nothing, this is it, and this desperation and this refusal to really love yourself and others as who you truly are, taking God out of it, then you reduce a human being to an utterly meaningless concept. Well, and to love the creature and ignore the creator is really a delusion anyway. It doesn't even mm -hmm. make sense. But, you know, I don't know if you've seen, you know, Ben Stein did a thing, you know, called Expelled. And it was probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, maybe 20 years ago now, uh, where he went into the school, when he went into the universities and kept asking all these, all these scientists that were you know, believed in evolution and all these things. And they could never come up with a rational explanation as to how things began. But anybody who believed the creator was being kicked out of the universities. And we've kind of seen the fruits of that as we've moved on. Yes, and it is very telling that the that it's not an open debate because, right, science is never proven. Theories are, you know, the entire scientific process is this process of asking questions and positing hypotheses and then presenting evidence. And so the, the irony of so-called scientists 
shutting down any dissenting opinion is kind of unmatched. <laughs> yeah, and we see it. And really, faith and science go together. They're not they shouldn't be pitted against each other. But you know, and then you're in, in your final example on how to create an atheist, you talk about this promise of utopia. What's what's that all about? Exactly. So this really stems from the first step, which is worshiping of the self. This is sort of the Kantian moral imperative of worshiping the self, which is worshiping mankind as a whole. And so atheists remove God from the discourse altogether. They remove the idea of an afterlife. They remove all ideas of eternal happiness. And so instead, they have to supplement that with something. So they have to provide an alternative. And the alternative goal that they provide to us is heaven on earth, utopia, a worldly utopia. We know just from basic Catholic principles that this is impossible, (laughs) that the only, because we're in a fallen state, the only way that we will reach perfection and perfect happiness is to be united with God in heaven through accepting the graces of Jesus' sacrifice. But atheists, and we really see this a lot in the 20th century with both the fascist and communist movements, they really seek to create this utopia on earth. They promise a world free from disease, free from pain, free from hard, you know, hard labor and uh, persecution, oppression. And they're, they're promising something impossible. So just like the Tower of Babel, it's doomed to fail. But the, the interesting thing about this is that their utopias are always modeled on religion. And it's another irony is that Uh, One example given in the book is the religion of humanity from Auguste Comte, who is the son of the French Revolution that we discussed, um, otherwise known as positivism. He created this atheistic religion, really this this system of living that was complete with its own rituals and feast days and regalia. So it was this confused appropriation of true faith to satisfy that instinct within the human heart while trying, well, making our teleological end this earth, which is just totally disordered because we know that this world will pass away and that we need to store up our treasure in heaven. And so this is very interesting and a very good tie to Father Michelli's book about the Antichrist, because this worldly utopia is the doctrine of the Antichrist. We know that the Antichrist will promise heaven on earth. And that is one of the reasons that we can not be deceived is because we know heaven on earth is impossible. So the Antichrist often is portrayed in literature as offending no one and providing bread in circuses and keeping everyone sated and happy, just like in dystopian novels. But it lacks that core truth about who we are and what our role is in the spiritual order. Well, and all you have to do is, and you know, looking at your studies, whether it's, uh, you know, what happened in Russia, you can read about, you know, read Alexander Solzhenitsyn if you want to understand what that revolution looked like. But all it's led to is murder, right? It's led to poverty. And so these these lies, and the funny thing is, right, we had the Garden of Eden, right? We had this utopia until mm-hmm. our first parents sinned and we were kicked out of it and we continue to worship self, yet think by doing that, we're going to find a utopia outside of God, which is, you know, talk about the definition of insanity. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. We keep trying the same fallen things again and again. And you're exactly right. That is the definition of insanity. And the remedy to that is to accept that this world is not utopia and to accept what God tells us. 
Well, we're down just the, the last couple minutes and I knew this would go really fast, but, you know, I think by you, you know, putting pen to paper and, and, and writing articles like this and, and, and people understanding the history of communism, right? We, we should be aware of what the tactics are so that when we see them, we call them out, right? We, we can't go through life fat, dumb, and happy, and then expect everything to go well if we're going to, if we're going to ignore all these signs and, you know, these signs where you, you know, read Father Michelli, or I'm sure your book, when it comes out, well, again, will be very helpful in helping parents and grandparents and understand what's going on to their kids and their grandkids so that they can take action and live their faith and not let the world kind of dictate where their kids are going because we know where that'll end up, right? Exactly. And that's what the value is in reading books such as these and in writing the article like I wrote is that today, if you were just you know, born and wake up in the world, it seems as if this is the default state of man is <laughs> to have most people you meet identify as atheist or its non-committal cousin as agnostic, as I call it. And that is not always the case. That has not been the case for most of human history. And so this book really shows us that atheism and communism were not natural disasters that were just bound to happen, but rather they were ideological revolutions that were carefully calculated. And by profiling these individuals, these godfathers of atheism, who set out their playbook, really, and that, which has been followed to a T, um, continuing up into modern politics, we can really identify where these errors are coming from. And I think that's so important for being able to not only navigate this world, but uh, just get to the truth, is to understand that many of what we thought were default states of man are actually not, and that the default state of man is as a child of God. And so this is uh, this book is very good opposition research <laughs> for any, I think, necessary reading for anyone trying to navigate the university system, for example, or even just having discussions with uh, about the world with those who who identify as atheists. Is where do these ideas come from, and what do they actually signify? What are their ramifications? So how can people follow what you're doing, Kristen? So I am currently editing Catholic Exchange. So you can, I, I write, try to write about an article a week there myself. So you can check out my writing at Catholic Exchange and then keep an eye on the Sophia Institute website for my forthcoming book, which will be sometime next year. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.